I hope you like that last song. I've been jamming on that all week, so uh, it's just a, a rich, deep song. Uh, I don't know if it's an actual hymn or not, but it's amazing. So, um, yeah, hopefully we, we get to hear that one a little bit more. But, well, I don't know if you have any pet peeves. Um, anyone have some pet peeves out there? Anyone have their spouse? Like you have a pet peeve of your spouse? It's just a little marriage counseling time. Um, but one of my biggest pet peeves is driving around in the big city. And, and this was a way bigger pet peeve for me about a decade ago. And, and the reason is, is because, you know, the city just moves at a fast pace. And, and when you're downtown in cities, you're unfamiliar with, with the roads and there's one ways and you make like one wrong turn and you're like, oh, now am I going to figure out how to get back on track? And then all of a sudden there was this invention called GPS. Thank God for GPS, right? It was a game changer. And uh, for me, I still don't like driving around in big cities. It's not my favorite thing to do. But, but GPS has made it a lot easier for me uh, to, to do this seemingly impossible task. You see, with GPS, you just type in the destination. You hit go on your little map. And it leads you the most efficient route to your destination. That's beautiful. And as we have uh, began this journey through the book of Acts, uh, we're seeing that the destination itself has been set. Jesus had promised his people that their destination is in his kingdom in heaven. So they know where they're going, but they still have uh, this life to live, this life following after Jesus. And Acts provides somewhat of a road map uh, for us of what that can look like. So last week we kicked off our study through the book of Acts and Nate just did a great job getting us into the book and and kicking things off here. And if you didn't have a chance to hear that message, I would highly encourage you to go either to our website or go to our podcast on iTunes and, and, and pipe into that. Because these first couple messages are really helping frame our mind and heart as we look to the book of Acts. And one of the main things we need to understand about Acts is what type of literature it is. The Bible's filled with all different genres of literature, okay? So we have um, poetry, you have letters of instruction that are called epistles, you have prophecy, you have wisdom literature, and there's some more. But the type of literature that each book of the Bible is really informs the way that we read, interpret, and apply that book of the Bible. And so it's important for us to understand that Acts is historical narrative, It's the history of the church. It's the story of the church. What actually happened as the church was born. And I don't know if you've been around church a long time or if you ever wonder, like, why are there so many different churches and denominations and what's the deal with all this? Well, Acts, I believe, is is one of the main books that has caused theological division amongst the church over the years. You see, some people read Acts strictly as history. They read the book, hey, this is just the story of what happened. And there's very little from the story that still applies to us today. Other people will read Acts and say, no, 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 this is the exact blueprint. Like, if we want to be the the purest essence of the church, we need to do exactly what Acts did. That's their line of thinking. Well, Nate explained for us last week that we as a church, we believe that Acts is both descriptive and that is describing to us what uniquely happened in that period of time, but there are also components of Acts that are prescriptive, that are are commands and practices for the church 
to follow, things that still apply to us today. And so as we teach through Acts, we're going to do our best to faithfully tell the story because we're going to read through it verse by verse. But we're also going to do our best job to decipher, okay, what, what should this look like for us and what would be a misapplication for us as well? And so you have your notes there. The main idea for us this morning, and these are all really the, the applicable principles, I think, that we can draw out of our passage today. And it's this, is that Jesus' followers are uni- unified in purpose, saturated in the word, and led by qualified men. So at this point in our narrative, the disciples have just received this commission from Jesus. And he says, you're going you're gonna to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Go in the city and wait, and you'll know when he comes. And so uh, that's where we pick up in verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So now... Try to put yourself in the shoes of these men for just a moment, okay? You've probably just witnessed the most incredible thing of your entire life. This, this guy who you've been following around for three years, you, you see him crucified on a cross. And then three days later, there's rumors that he has come back from the grave. And then over a 40-day period of time, he just keeps showing up. And he's giving you instruction. And, and the last thing you're, you're left with is him saying, okay, guys, here's what I want you to do. You're going to be my witnesses. I'm going to send my spirit upon you. And then he just ascends into heaven. <laughs> there he goes. Okay. And then these angels show up and they're like, okay, what are you doing standing around? Jesus told you to get to Jerusalem. And you're like, intense moment, right? If you've you've ever had a moment of of astonishment in your life, I'm pretty sure this would be number one on the list. So this is their frame of mind. And so they they go a Sabbath day journey back to Jerusalem. It's about a 15-minute walk. And there's a part of me, I'm just like, I wish I could have just listened in on their conversation on that walk. What would that have been like to hear them be like, did you see that? And then he just disappeared in the clouds and the angels and... I don't know. That gets me excited. Hope it does with you. But here's the deal. The risen Christ had made them a promise. And now they are expectantly awaiting that promise to be fulfilled. So verse 13. And they they had entered Jerusalem. They went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew. Philip and Thomas. Bartholomew and Matthew. James the son of Alphaeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. So many scholars and commentators. Am I doing that? What's going on here? Is this my problem? I'll just stay still. I'm not going to move. Many scholars and commentators. <laughs> they've they've, they've uh, made this assumption. I think it's pretty safe that this upper room was the same upper room where they celebrated the Last Supper with Jesus. Okay, now we don't have like hard, fast fact on that, but it would be pretty fitting for them to return to the same place that they received the promise of the Holy Spirit, right? Some of Jesus' most profound teaching was in the upper room where he informed them, hey guys, it's better for you that I go away because if I don't, I, the, the helper won't come, but I'm going to send the helper. He's going to come upon you. He's going to help you. So they go to the upper room, which in speculation is the same place. And what do they do when they get there? Verse 14 
says, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It's helpful for us to read the end of Luke alongside of this verse because uh, Luke informs us that they're not just spending their entire time praying in this room. They're actually bouncing back and forth between the upper room and this prayer time and praise in the temple. So Luke 24, 52 through 53 says this, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So John Stott put it this way. He said it was a healthy combination, continuous praise in the temple and continuous praise in the home. And what we see from this is that Jesus' followers were unified in purpose. They were gathered for the same reason. They knew that Jesus Christ was the risen Lord and now they are all together expecting the promise of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And we're going to look at that next week. But what I love about the author of our text, Luke, who was also a doctor, is that he gives us some detail that are really informative and significant for us as a church today. And one of it is that he mentions that Jesus' mother, Mary, and Jesus' half-brothers are present a part of this group. Some churches, the Catholic Church being one of them, has elevated Mary to a place that the Scripture simply does not elevate her to. Mary's not a perpetual virgin. She is not born without sin, and she is not to be prayed to. Nowhere in all the scriptures could you ever come to that conclusion. And here we see Mary and Jesus' brothers together with the disciples praising God and believing that Jesus, who was once part of their family, is the Messiah, the Savior, the one to be worshipped and praised and followed. Now, how many of you would, would ever claim that of any of your family members no we know the good bad and the ugly of our family members more than anyone else right and so for for mary and his half brothers to be convinced that's pretty convincing for us there's something unique about jesus and as we learn from the scriptures jesus is the only one who and through we pray to for access to god the father we don't pray to mary we don't Ask Mary to pray on our behalf. Mary and Jesus' brothers needed Jesus just as much for salvation as you and I do. That's important. We need to know that. Jesus has made access to the Father available, direct access. And this is the good news of the gospel. That through our faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, that our sin can be forgiven. And not only through that, but through his resurrection, we have the hope of eternal life. And we now have direct access to the ear of our Heavenly Father. When we pray, we know that God hears us because Christ is in our place, interceding for us. This is what sets Christianity apart from everything else. It says that Jesus' followers have have intimate communion with God himself. It's a divine, beautiful mystery. And because Jesus is the only way to the Father, Jesus is also the only one who has the power to keep his church unified in purpose. And one of the main ways he has done that for us is through giving us his Word And with that, let's keep reading in Acts, verse 15. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. 
And he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open into the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So here Peter stands up in front of this group of about 120. He says, guys, I know what happened. The scriptures foretold that Judas was going to betray Jesus. And here's where it's at. And he quotes these two different psalms. But he explains to them that, look, everything that has proceeded from the mouth of God, every promise, every prediction is going to be fulfilled. That's what he's saying. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. And I love here that Peter gives the Holy Spirit credit for penning the Psalms through King David. And that's the way the scriptures are written. Is that God inspires men through the power of the Holy Spirit to pen his word. And that's how we ended up with the Bible. So what we learn here is that not only are they praying in the upper room, not only are they going to the temple to praise, but they are saturated in the word of God. The word of God is active and present among this group. And as Psalm 119.89 says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The word of God is like our GPS directions. It's telling us where to go. It's telling us the path we should be on and the turns that we should take. And when we're saturated in the word of God, when we're looking for our instruction from his word, we know we're on the right path. We know we're heading towards the destination that Jesus has promised. And here we see these two Psalms, Psalm 69, 25, and then Psalm 109, 8, that Peter quotes... And he gives the Holy Spirit credit for saying this through the mouth of David as a prediction of what would happen to Judas. Now, there's a big misapplication, I think, that we could take from this as a church. And we could say, well, man, should should we just go look to the Bible for everything that happens in our life and affirmation that that happened? Like, oh, maybe, maybe, um, maybe this hardship happened but God told me somewhere that, that it, it was going to happen. So I need to go search the scriptures to see if, for, you know, if it foretold that. I said, no. Not every event of your life and everything that's happened in this world is foretold in the scriptures. But what we are given is enough information to see God's time-tested character so that our faith is built and we can trust confidently that he will be true to his promises no matter the circumstances of life. And as we get deeper into Acts, we're going to see some pretty hard stuff. We're going to see some of Jesus' followers die for their faith. This is, this is a normative thing. But again, it's a misapplication to think, oh, everything about my life is going to be said somewhere in this book. God's word does, however, set the course of our lives and it keeps us as the church on the right path. 
And so any time that a church veers away from the centrality of the teaching and preaching of God's word, you know that they have veered off of the path. They have steered away from what Jesus has called his church to be devoted to. And this is why, bringing us to the next point, that the church needs qualified men who are equipped and committed to upholding the word of God no matter what the consequence may be. Let's keep reading. Verse 21 says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forth two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right, so the early church had this unique group of men called the apostles. And Peter gives us these qualifications in this text for what made you or qualified you to be an apostle. So verse 21, it says, One of these men that have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So an apostle had to be present during Jesus' entire ministry. It's a big qualification. Secondly, verse 22, it says, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. So starting with Jesus' baptism all the way to being an eyewitness to Jesus' ascension back into heaven. That was another requirement. In the second part of verse 22, it says, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they must join this apostleship, this group of men, to be witnesses of the resurrection. And so an apostle... In, in a short definition, is a witness of the resurrection who is commissioned by Jesus. R.C. Sproul gave this definition, a little more wordy, but I like it. And he said this, An ambassador commissioned by a king or a ruler and given designated authority to speak in his name and with his power. And so as, as Peter lays out these requirements for this uh, replacement apostle, there's only two guys present who fit that description. And so they bring those two before uh, everybody else and they pray. They say, God, show us. Who do you want to fill this role? God, show us. We need you to direct us. And so it says that they cast the lots, which is kind of like rolling the dice. And the lot falls to Matthias. And so, again, it would be a misinterpretation for us today of the text to say, well, this is how we should make godly decisions in the church today. This is how we should appoint our leaders. Let's just, you know, get a group of guys in a room and let's start rolling dice and just see who, who God wants to be the leader. That, that's not how it works in the context of the local church. And, and, and the 12 apostles in this situation are given unique authority from Jesus to preach and teach in his name. And the only exception that we have to this big A apostle uh, in the scripture is the apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul, as we will see, was uh, uh, Jesus showed up in a way that Paul couldn't forget. The risen Christ manifested himself to Paul in a powerful way and said, Paul, your life is mine. You're following me. Come on. 
and Paul was blind, and so he kind of didn't have a choice, um, so he, he did it. Um, I'm pretty sure you would, too, if you're in that situation. Anyway, so the apostles have this unique ability. They have this unique authority, and they go on to be the ones who pen the New Testament scriptures, the authoritative word of God. And that's one of the, that was one of the guidelines for the canon to see which of these books is actually considered scripture. Was it written by an apostle or a direct companion of an apostle? That's how you know uh, that part of the way that the New Testament uh, was, was um, collected and, and came to an agreement. But here's what we see in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. It says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's all of us. But then it says this, Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him you also are being built up together into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So the apostles and the prophets are the ones who penned the word of God by the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit to exalt Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of all and to preach the gospel in his name. And Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the glue. He is the one that holds us together as a church. And what this means for us is that no church leader today has the authority or the power to modify or to edit or to add to the word of God. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. And church leaders this day are merely stewards of what God has already said. God has spoken. He has spoken clearly. And it is is the call of qualified men to uphold the truth of God's word and keep it central to the church. Now here's where uh, a, a, a dynamic of the church can rub our culture a little bit wrong because what we see is that a healthy biblical model church is led by a team of male pastors or male elders. And these men have, have qualifications on their lives to be loving and committed to the word of God. But some people would read this and say, well, just because the apostles were men, why should pastors be men? Like, isn't, isn't that prescriptive? Isn't that just taking what happened and saying this should apply to the church? And I would say, if you've had that thought, you would be right. If Scripture didn't specifically say in multiple other places the same design. And so as we go through Acts, we need to be careful to say, okay, how do we know if this is prescriptive or descriptive? We say, well, where else in Scripture is this talked about? We need to cross-reference And where the Bible speaks about a specific topic multiple times, we can hold fast to that it is important and it is true. And that's the way we know uh, what doctrine and practices God wants in his church. And so for us as Redemption Church, the role of elder pastor, we use those two words synonymously, is the only role in the church that we reserve exclusively for men. And it's not a statement of value. It's not a statement of competence. It's a statement of God's design, as we see throughout the scriptures. And so for us, it's, it's not, hey, we didn't choose this as the structure of the design. This is what God's word presents to us. We believe women can have a, a multitude of other leadership roles within the church, just not specifically this one. And we see Titus 1, 5 through 9, gives us a little more information about that. Paul writes this to 
to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above, uh, above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to charges of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunk or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So here we learn that the church is supposed to be led by a, a multiple uh, group of elders or pastors. And we learn that they're not to be polygamists, okay? Did you catch that? Husband of one wife. They're not to be proud. They're not to be quick-tempered or drunk or violent. They're to be lovers of good, self-controlled, holy, disciplined. Additionally, we learn that they have to hold fast to the word of God. And it says, as they were taught, meaning that they've been apprenticed or discipled by other leaders in the church and raised up as leaders. They have to be able to instruct in sound doctrine and also contradict false doctrine. These are the character qualities and the competencies of those who God entrusts to lead his church. And I am super excited because next week we get to uh, really um, uh, appoint two more pastors to our pastoral team. We get to bring Jeff and Nate both on to the team. And, uh, and you guys, most of you know them, but, but Nate and Jeff have just been faithful examples over the last three years of this church plant. And they've just finished their two-year pastoral training process. And, and we get to celebrate by bringing them on next week. Now, are these men perfect? I'm glad somebody laughed. No, they're not perfect. None of us are perfect. But these men have proven themselves to be good and godly men. They've proven themselves to be examples of servant-hearted leaders who are willing to lay down their life, to give up their time and energy to love and shepherd and care for this church. And it's going to be a huge blessing and joy to have them on the team. God has given his church godly men to also help us along this road and help us to stay on the, raw, the right path. And so in principle, what we've seen from this text, the things we can walk away with is say, okay, Jesus is the one that keeps us unified in purpose. Jesus is the one that says, be saturated in the word, abide in my word, remain in me. And Jesus is the one that says, hey, I'm, I'm calling qualified men to be leaders within the church. And when these principles are in practice, when these things are active in our midst, there is good fruit. The church is unified. The church is loving. The church is healthy. The church is seeing the kingdom of God advance. And so, again, as, as we fight to, to keep God's order and structure for his church central, I believe God will bless that. And he will... Be with us, and we will see him do incredible things through us as we continue to love and worship him and love and serve one another. Now, it's important for us to realize that um, in this text, it says they were together with one accord, meaning that they, they were, they were common-minded, common-hearted, common-purpose. But within the church, we're not going to agree 
on 100% of the things 100% of the time. Has anyone found that to be true yet? Yeah, we have one honest person in the crowd. Amen. What this does mean, though, is that our commonality in Christ is so much stronger than the minor differences that we're going to have. What Christ has done in drawing us to himself and giving us the gift of salvation is so much more significant than some of the petty little arguments that we're going to choose to fight about. And when Jesus is central and what he has done for us stays in front of us, it's easy to let the little disagreements go and to not allow those to create wedges or to cause division. Well, one of my favorite features of the GPS is the rerouting feature. Does that kick in for anybody ever? You see it, rerouting, dot, dot, dot. You're like, oh, thank God, because I couldn't reroute myself. What this tells us and, and what this illustrates for us is that we're all prone to take wrong turns sometimes. We're all prone to get off the path or to miss a turn that maybe God had for us. We're all prone to experience temptation, but God's grace and his patience in our life is constantly rerouting us back to him, back to the path that he would have us live on. And this is why we we believe so strongly that the gathering of the saints Sunday morning, this is critical to our spiritual life and health because it's a time and a place that we set aside to say, hey, we're going to saturate ourselves in the word of God. And then our small groups during the week, that's another place where, hey, let's get into the word of God. Let's pray for one another. Let's, let's be in each other's lives and carry each other's burdens. These are all things that continue to keep us on the path of following Jesus. And what I love about uh, the, the ordinances that Christ has given us through baptism and through communion is that I, I think those are two rerouting Um, ordinances, that that as we observe baptisms, we're reminded of the magnitude of salvation that God is still saving people to this day. But as we partake of communion, it's our chance every week to say, all right, Lord, where am I off? Where is my heart drifted from you? Help me, Lord, realign my life and my focus to be on you. And communion reminds us over and over again that we never outgrow our need for the gospel. And that we have never been bad enough this past week to where we aren't still able to embrace it with joy. And to trust Christ's sacrifice in our place. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to the table of grace. To invite you to come and partake of the elements Maybe for you, you've been wandering for a while. Maybe you've been off the path of following Jesus. And, and I just, I'm praying that maybe this is a chance, a moment in time where you can just say, God, I need to get back on the path with you. I've been taking my own road. I've been on a detour myself. And I want to come back, God. I want to get back on the path. And so for all of us, I just, I'm praying and I'm hoping that communion is an act of faith in what Christ has done. Also allow it to be uh, an act of confession where you can, conf- you can freely come before God and say, yeah, I don't have what it takes. I have messed up this week, God, and yet you are still gracious. You still forgive me. And let communion be a resolve to keep following Jesus on the path of life.
So I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come up, and uh, we have two tables up front here, and, and just how we do is you can come out of your seat and you just take uh, the cracker. You can dip it in the juice. Just partake right there at the table. But when you're ready and, and when you sense uh, you've had a chance to pray and just talk with the Lord, um, come on up. And uh, again, lastly, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, we would just encourage you to abstain from the table. This is like one of the only things the church does for specifically for those who have put their faith in Christ. But if your faith is in Christ this morning, I welcome you to come freely because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.